Okay, welcome everybody. The story begins. Okay, we're continuing chapter 29. Chapter 29, it's really an intense chapter. It's not something you would expect to see in Chabad literature. You know, we're, we're used to the free hugs, we're used to the, the positive spirit. Um, and in a sense, this is very positive, but it's harsh. It's, you know, there's chesed, there's kindness, and there's gevura, there's discipline. Discipline is not necessarily negative. But it's it's harsh, but it's it's very positive. Goal of Tanya is to help us act. That's ultimately the goal. To enrich our relationship with God, our emotional connection with God. I'm trying to access this soul. I'm trying to access my passion for God. I'm trying to access some sort of feeling in this relationship. So it's not just behavioral. It doesn't just run dry and boring and burn me out. And usually, method is to fuel more fire, right? Try to somehow inspire ourselves, whether through meditation or whether it be through realizing our core identity as Jewish people and our inner willingness to live for God. If we're ready to die for God, we're ready to live for Him as well. But over here, we're taking a, whole, a totally different course. We're not fueling the fire. We're making the log more fit for receiving this fire. So rather than fueling the soul, we have to enable the body to be a reciprocal for this soul. Welcome, Lawrence. Hey, Lawrence. Oh, oh sorry, I'm late. No problem. We just started. <laughs> Just started. So, we're trying to minimize the body, not in the physical sense, but more in our focal sense. What are we focusing on? And that allows more room for the soul. It's like a log. If the log is just too thick, if it's too dense, the fire won't catch on. You have to splinter it. If the body's too dense, if the klipa is too intense, it's going to block the soul rather than reveal it. The body should reveal the soul. It should not obstruct it. If it's obstructing it rather than revealing it, it could be too intense. And just, just to recap, go to page 325, the third bold paragraph, third paragraph of the page. What, what obstructs our inspiration, our souls? He says, despite your efforts at meditation, your awakening or inspiration, due to the vulgarity of the klipa in your mind and heart, which exerts itself over the divine soul's light, hiding and blocking its light from illuminating the rest of your soul. So the body and the klipa, they're kind of synonymous, tend to often obstruct our sensitivity to the soul rather than reveal it. So the goal of Tanya, as we discussed earlier, uh, the goal, sorry, of this chapter, we, as we discussed in the last lesson, is to kind of soften up um, and kind of break the of the body. And we'll discuss how to do that. We never got, we, we didn't discuss yet how to do that. We'll get there soon. But first, I warn you that we do this with extreme caution. <laughs> The goal here is not to, God forbid, break us. The goal is to build us. If we walk out after this course, after this, sorry, after this discussion, feeling like we need to break ourselves, then I have failed personally as a Tanya teacher. Because our goal here is not to break ourselves. Our goal is to build ourselves. That takes discipline. That takes work. That takes effort. It's not breaking. It, it's building. Sometimes building requires breaking as a prerequisite. The goal is not to, God forbid, break. You go to the gym, you work out, and you're all, you're all sore. And if your soul is sore forever, <laughs> then you know, you're not getting stronger. We're missing the point. The point is you're sore, but the muscles are rebuilding themselves and getting stronger. 
when you go to the gym, all this nice equipment there, fancy equipment, and it's all very intriguing. But you need a trainer to make sure you don't hurt your Which is ideal, like it says in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, the sages say, every person has to have a mentor to guide them. Because if you just go to the gym and start using all this equipment, without knowing what you're doing, you could hurt yourself. If you jump into Tanya and you start exercising all these ideas, when it may not necessarily be appropriate or not in the appropriate way, or you're not understanding it the right way, it could be dangerous. So I just, as a disclaimer, it's important that we exercise all of this with extreme caution. Our goal ultimately is to break down this wall of clay, take down that wall, which is obstructing the soul, so our soul can shine through. Just to, uh, let's quickly jump back to the beginning of chapter uh, 26, page 7. 297, 297. It's the bottom of the page, the last bold paragraph, or the second to the last bold paragraph, not, not the Hasidic thought, but right on top of that. Here's what he says, and, and this is very relevant to our chapter, so it's just a, it's a helpful, quick recap. He says, through this sadness and introspection, the impure spirit, the sitra akhra, the klipa, the body, whatever we want to call it, all the different synonyms will be shattered. Next page, as well as the iron wall which interposes, which intercepts, which obstructs between you and your father in heaven. Like it says in the Zohar, the Zohar comments on the verse from Psalms, a broken spirit, a broken and a heart, a heart that is broken. And what is that word? Contrite. Contrite. You do not reject, oh God. Basically, the more we are involved in sin, the more we're involved in self centered or self-oriented activity the more desensitized we become and in addition to adding more soul we also have to remove that wall which has desensitized us this is known in english as teshuva <laughs> not real english but we're familiar many of us are familiar with the with the concept of teshuva which literally translates as repentance that's essentially what teshuva is. Teshuva is removing that wall that we built that is desensitizing us in our relationship from God. And by the way... What did you say the, uh, the translation was? I said that is the translation. Teshuva. I was making a joke. I... Oh, because I thought oh, you said... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. It's literally translated as... It's not literally translated. It's often translated as repentance. Okay. But that's not how we normally think about it, right? So, good question. Teshuva is literally translated. If you translate the word literally, it's probably more accurate. Return. Right. Return is a better um, translation. But the truth is, there's two types of teshuva. The Zohar says there's the lower level of teshuva and there's teshuva. The teshuva we're talking about, which is trying to take down this iron wall, which is obstructing our relationship with God, which is obstructing us, which is desensitizing us from being aware of our souls. That's the lower level of teshuva. Because I did inappropriate activity or had inappropriate thoughts, inappropriate speech, inappropriate, and that built a wall that's obstructing me, obstructing my uh, me from my relationship with God, from my awareness of my soul. I have to take down that wall. That's the lower level of teshuva. Higher level of teshuva is now that I've built out, now that I've taken down that wall, I need to actively connect. I need to return. So I would say, I would venture to say, I'm not, I'm not an expert translator, but I would venture to say that the lower level of teshuva, taking down that wall that's obstructing us, would be translated as repentance, and that the higher level of teshuva which is actively connecting to God, despite whether we did anything wrong or not, it's it's just about returning our souls and, and, and rebuilding the relationship. That would be return. We translate it as return. Make sense? Yeah. You know, what's interesting about this is, and I don't want to jump ahead too far in the chapter, but, you know, a after reading the chapter, I, I kind of have more of a 
uh, a sense that teshuva is is not a is never it's never to be considered a static thing like okay I, I've done it and I'm finished like it's rather it's like okay you know at, at some point in my life I had a certain level of maturity and and I did teshuva to the best of my ability then but now ten years later I have a different higher level of maturity and I can view the that action or whatever it was in, with more mature eyes and provide a, a, a more powerful or a more mature level of uh, teshuva. Uh, right. Right. Sometimes that teshuva is good for where I was back then. As I as we advance in our spiritual maturity in our relationship, and this is I think applicable to any relationship, we need to up our game. You know was good for, you know, a good example for this, you know, a 10-year-old shoplifts a candy bar from 7-Eleven. You know, he can apologize. He can write a sorry note. He can pay back the 7-Eleven guy. But when he's trying to apply for a job later on, he might need a little bit more to get that off his record. And when he's trying to apply even later for uh, a political position, and he has it. He has to do more. He has to make programs to keep. You know, as we grow, we need more. And the sign, and we'll talk about this soon. The sign that that tells us we need more is the fact that we're feeling desensitized, even though I've done teshuva already. But we'll we'll talk about that soon. But the the teshuva that we are referring to in this chapter, and and in this chapter, he doesn't really use the word teshuva. It's kind of between the lines. Discusses the idea of teshuva, but he doesn't use the actual word. But the teshuva we're referring to is, I would say, the lower level of teshuva. Repentance, removing that wall. The higher level of teshuva is connecting to God. And that level of teshuva, you know, you don't have to be a sinner to do teshuva. You just have to return. Okay. How do we break down this wall? How do we tear down this wall? <laughs> not a pretty thing. What? It's not a pretty sight. It's not a pretty sight. And and I do warn that we do this cautiously with a mentor, with a guide. Um, just like going to the gym. It's sore. It's a tough thing to do to lift, lift all those light weights and to use all those uh, cycles and all that stuff. You have to have a trainer. You have to do it carefully. You have to do it methodically. But in our chapter, the Alter Rebbe, the author, gives us five different meditations. Holding a pen, five different meditations <laughs> um, to focus on, to try to tear down that wall. That wall, referring to our, we don't mean the bodies in the physical sense, but in our focal sense. Our natural perspective. You know, the, the tzaddik's perspective is I'm a soul and I have a body. As we said last time, that's why Hillel, the great sage, used to say, I'm going to do my body a favor. That wasn't his identity. He was a soul. He had a body. He was expressed through a body. But our natural, and that's the essence of every, of all of us. That is our true essence. But on a conscious level, we are a body. <laughs> have this abstract soul that we're trying to become aware of. And the reason why it's like that is because we're a little bit desensitized. Um, it's not, sometimes we're desensitized because we've done things that we shouldn't have. Sometimes we've desensitized, we're desensitized because of the environment that we're in. Sometimes we're desensitized because we're human and we're just born into this physical world. So it's not about feeling bad or guilty. That's not the point. The point is that we're here to do something about it. We're here to have this tough conversation with ourselves. And this tough conversation, there's five different conversations we can have with us. And each of us are going to need a different conversation because we're all different. And we're all desensitized, I speak for myself, for different reasons, for different causes. But the point is to remind ourselves that the body is not all that. The animal soul, my lusts, my self-oriented drives and purpose is not all that. There's actually more to life. There's more than what meets the eye. 
There's more, more than what meets our own natural awareness and consciousness. And we're here to remind ourselves of that. And here are the five ways of doing it. Number one. Um, <clears throat> On, okay, number one is on page 328. 328 slash 329. Middle of 328. Let me start from the middle. In the case of a Bainani, the case of this middle person who hasn't totally internalized the divine soul because he's desensitized, right? Since his... Yes? Oh. Sorry, before you go further, the um, the breaking up by the date, this uh, 29th Shabbat regular and 12th Adar, is there some meaning to that? Or because I, I have no clue. Okay, good, good question. So there's a daily uh, study cycle for Tanya that goes according to the Hebrew dates, and it's a so every day there's a that study that goes according to the Hebrew dates, and over the course of an entire year, the book is finished. Um, Recently, or because, or was that there from the beginning? I don't remember the earlier chapter. Uh, no, 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 it, it was there. Good question. Yeah, right. from the beginning. Um, no, no, good, good question. So, for a leap year, leap year, a, a Jewish leap year has an additional month, so it's going to have to have a different um, program than a regular year. Are we even close to following this cycle, or or no? No, no, we're we're taking it. <laughs> we're going. Um, because right? we're, we're doing it weekly. Your plan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, well, we're doing it weekly. So we're, but today, for example, was uh, the twenty eighth of Nissan, which is the which culminated chapter fifty uh, forty two. So if, tomorrow, if you want to, if you want to be with the cycle on your own, you can go to chapter forty three, and that will be uh, tomorrow's portion. Right. Never mind. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, of course. So here's what he says. In the case of the Benini, since his energizing animal in his flesh and blood has a deep core of Sitra Akhra, which hasn't been transformed to good, that constitutes the Benini's actual identity. Our identity on a conscious level is our bodies, not so much our souls. Right? Our body's desires usually um, take precedence over our divine soul's desires, unless we put up a fight. That's just how it is by nature for, for us regular folk. It's very normal. And I mean that this is, this is normal. It doesn't matter what type of community you've grown up in. You may have grown up in Borough Park with very long curls on the side, but your, your body takes precedence because you're a human being. Unless you put up a fight and push your divine soul, right? But being that that's the case, as he continues to say, even if he's not transgressing against what God wants, but he lusts to, he has those desires, right? We desire to do what we want. Our desire, which means our direction in life, is where we want, not where God wants. And reminding ourselves of that, it's a tough conversation to have. But it's reminding us that, in a sense, if that's the way we choose to live, we're actually worse than, than the klipa itself. The klipa is that the negative energy which hides God, because we're choosing to hide God. Whereas the klipa was created to hide God, by God. The klipa is doing its job. We're not. Earlier in chapter, um, he quotes it over here, but I forgot where, oh yeah, in chapter 24, we said sinning is worse than, than, than this negative klipa. Because when, you, when, we, when one sins, that sin create, hides God, rejects God. The klipa doesn't reject God, it just hides God, but it was created to do that. Here he's taking it a step further. Even if we lust to sin, our direction is in a totally different place. And if we don't choose to change our direction, essentially, in, in a certain sense, we're worse than the klipa. 
That's not to tell us that we're all bad. It's to tell us that we have room for improvement and this it's supposed to be humbling. That's really the, the bottom line. The reason why we're having this um, conversation with ourselves. This is our first meditation and you'll do whatever works for you. But our meditation. This meditation is supposed to humble ourselves. Each of these five meditations that we're going to give. And that is very. To realize, wait a minute. Even if I'm not doing anything wrong, what excites me in life more? To study Torah, to pray, to connect to God, to do a favor for somebody, to bring goodness and kindness to this world, or something that's more self-serving and self-indulgent, or even just self-oriented? What's more exciting? Even if I'm actually involved in the holy things, but what excites me? And the fact that it's often more excited about myself than I am over my soul is a humbling thing to realize, wait a minute, I have room for growth. And that humility is an act of softening up that log, if you will, so the fire can catch and inspire it. That's meditation number one. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Anyone agree, disagree, controversy? <laughs> okay. So, so so the first meditation is is to think about that um, our body is holding us back. Is that I mean, so? So, so it, in general, our body is holding us back. But the question is, how is our body holding back? And the way our body is holding back is the fact that its desires is. Um, is self-oriented. I'll, I'll, I'll read the actual paragraph on the bottom of the second to last paragraph on 328. This being the case that our identity, right? Continuing from before, we said the identity is the body, not the soul, unfortunately. This being the case, his identity is far from God as can be. For even though the Bainini has achieved totally ma total mastery over the external garments, even though the Bainini has mastery over its behavior, his animal soul's appetite has not been fundamentally transformed at its deep core. He's still capable of craving things that are forbidden, which violates God's will. Even if we're not behaving negatively, but the negativity still excites us. Right? We still have the craving for negativity. We still crave our bodies more than we crave our souls. Even if in practice, I think I may have froze. We can see you. We can hear you. Okay, good. Okay, good. Um, even though in practice we're behaving properly, but in terms of what our cravings are, our desires, our lusts, we're more excited by the body than the soul. Realizing that should be humbling to realize where we truly stand. Kind of putting ourselves in our place. That's that's meditation number one. Meditation number two. It's going to be on page 330. Second, yeah, okay. In other words, let's say meditation number one doesn't work. I've done meditation number one and I am still very insensitive. My soul. Another meditation he provides is uh, middle of page 330, right under the subject line there, right smack. Ego deflating sessions will especially be powerful when you recall how your soul is contaminated from sins of youth. We may have done things in our past, even though they're not part of our present, but we may have done them in our past and those sins may be um, obstructing us. And even though we may have done Teshuvah, we may have repented, we may have taken down that iron wall that was, you know, sometimes there's this iron wall blocking, like in the analogy we said earlier, and we make a hole so light can pierce through. And that's from where we were back then. Is it enough light for where we are now? We need to make a bigger hole. We need to up our game in Teshuvah, even for things that we have totally not done anymore, that we, that are part of our past. Make sense? Kind of like Mike was saying, Teshuvah is relative to where the individual is holding in, in their lives. 
number four. Sorry, number three. Number three will be on page uh, 332. Let's say I'm clean from sins of youth. So I've humbled myself by realizing where my lusts, where my drive truly is, what direction it is, and how it needs to be rerouted. I've reminded myself of my sins of youth and how although I may have repented in the past, it's not enough for where I'm holding now. And the proof is in the pudding, <laughs> the fact that I still feel desensitized. I've done that. So now the next step, meditation number three. Making a, an honest account of my neutral activities. Let's say I'm not sinning, but what is my focus in life? So I'm protecting my thoughts. I didn't, in other words, I didn't do anything wrong, right? But am I doing something right? In a relationship, in any relationship, and especially when it comes to a relationship with God, the focus can't just be, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't kill anybody. I'm a good person, right? Or in a marriage, I didn't cheat. I'm a good husband. Beautiful. But what did you do? What did we do, right? What did we do good? So, our thought, speech, and action are three garments. Didn't do anything wrong. I didn't think of anything sinful. I didn't think of anything. I didn't speak slanderous. I didn't speak evil. Behaviorally, I didn't do anything that I shouldn't have done that the Torah forbids. But am I doing something right with my thought, speech, and action? Is my time being used properly? Are my talents being used to their fullest to make this world a better place? What is my focus on a daily basis? Make sense? Making what's called, we call in Hebrew, an honest soul account. Making an account. And one, once in a while, this is, this is really a healthy thing. You know, I, I knew a person who every night before he went to sleep, he would have a, a, a physical checklist. Did I say prayers today? Check. Did I try to have kavana and feeling and intention and focus? Check or not check, whatever. Did I give charity today? Check. Okay, I didn't do anything wrong, but what did I do right? I'll tell you a story. There was a great chassid, Hasidic Jew. I forgot his name already, but he was a follower of the Rebbe Maharash, Rav Shmuel. Rav Shmuel Schneerson. He was the fourth Rebbe in the Chabad Lubavitch dynasty. And he tells, he, he's having a, a session, a discussion with this Hasid, with this follower. And he says, what do you study? Now, this person happened to have been fluent in two Hasidic works called Shar HaYichud and Shar HaEmuna, the gates of unity, the gate of faith. Two Hasidic works, known, one known as the Aleph base, the ABCs, if you will, of Hasidic thought. One known as the key of Hasidic thought. Two difficult books of study, academically challenging, but known as fundamental. He was fluent in these books. He was constantly reviewing them, reviewing these books of Hasidic philosophy, these particular books. So he says, what do you do before services, before prayer in the morning? This is what the Rebbe asks him, and he responds, I, I have my studies. I study these books. Gets me in the right mode, of, right, right frame of mind. He says, then I think about them. And then after prayers and journey, on these lofty uh, spiritual ideas, what do you do before you go to sleep? He says, well, before reciting the bedside, at the bedtime Shema, I also review these books and these ideas, and I think about them. And while it's a beautiful thing what he's doing, the Rebbe was not impressed with him. And here's what he says. Very interesting. He says, all this time, 
you're focused on godly ideas. What about yourself? What are you thinking about yourself? In other words, this entire time you're thinking about these lofty meditational, meditational, you're meditating on these lofty uh, spiritual ideas. Perhaps they're inspiring. But how does it impact you as a person, as a Jew, as a contributor to society? How does it impact you? You're not thinking about yourself. You have to apply these ideas to yourself, not just think about them. This guy was so overwhelmed, like, whoa, it shattered my whole bubble. It burst in my whole bubble. He fainted. He revived him, and the Rebbe said, now is not the time to faint. you got to do something. <laughs> it, it's harsh and it's intense, but very much befitting with our, tra with our chapter. Reminding ourselves that it's so important to study lofty ideas as we have been in Tanya. But we also have to apply the ideas to ourselves, not just thinking about God, but think about ourselves. In relation to in our relationship with God and other people as well. Okay, makes sense. And this was a chassid. Yeah. Okay. And because so so I guess it's possible to be a chassid and and still um, still have uh, you know wasted energy in a sense. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Never, don't get fooled by the beard, by the by the side locks, by by the hat, by the. Every everybody has their challenges. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Think about it. These ideas in Tanya, when they were authored two hundred years ago. Tanya was started off, as a book of advice. The Alter Rebbe would counsel people. The author. got too popular and he had to he said i'll write a book instead everybody could benefit from this who was he counseling he literally took the ideas that he was counseling with counseling with and just put them in a book that's what we're studying and who is he counseling these were people with long gray beards long black coats people that had real issues because they're people like you and me and it it it's applicable across the border. Everybody has their struggles, unless you're unless we're a tzaddik. But but the, the Tanya wasn't addressing tzaddik, but tzaddik, somebody who totally internalizes the soul. The Alter Rebbe did write a book for the tzaddik, but didn't uh, didn't pan out. Did I tell you guys that story? You're talking about yeah yeah the one that was burned down his manuscripts burned yeah 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 exactly exactly. But no, Lawrence, valid, very valid point, though. A hundred percent. You know, everybody, everybody's going to have their challenge, and this will apply to everybody, but in their own way. Um, you know, our specifically, we're all different. We all have our own areas of struggle, but in general, we all struggle. <laughs> we all have that common denominator. Okay, meditation number four. Having bad dreams. This is on page 333 on the bottom. I'm having negative dreams. Now, who cares? <laughs> well, think about it. This, like, I don't have a dream, right? Dreams just happen. I go to sleep at night and holy dreams that inspire me. I'm dreaming things that are perhaps even inappropriate. Which is an indication that my soul is not recharging. So what happens is when you go to sleep, the Talmud says that when a person who is sleeping is 160th dead. Which is why in the morning, we thank God immediately upon rising. We say the Moda'ani prayer, God, thank you for returning to me, my soul. Because I was partially dead. <laughs> my soul came back to me. Thank you, God. What was our soul? Why did our soul leave? part of our soul, leave the body, it went to recharge, to spiritually recharge. And what happens is, if we're having negative dreams, inappropriate dreams, that's an indication that our soul has not recharged properly, wasn't plugged into the right socket, if you will. Okay, but I don't really control about what, you know, so how is this fair? The answer is we do control what we dream. Because what you dream about 
at night is a direct result of what we think about in the day. So what are we involved with intellectually in the daytime? Will impact what we dream about at nighttime. Right? A young child who watches a horror movie is gonna get nightmares. Because what was on his mind in the daytime impacts him at nighttime. If we are engrossed in Torah study to the extent that we can, you know, there's the quantity and there's the quality. Even quantity-wise, it's difficult. You know, there's a lot going on in life. Quality of time. Right? Those two, those few minutes where I take time every day to study Torah, I'm focused, trying to get the most out of it, trying to apply the ideas. And those day that I pray and trying to get the most out of it, trying to inspire myself. If that's my focus, even if it's not my focus in terms of quantity, how long I could do it, the quality is of good focus. It's going to put me in a better place, and at night I'm going to have better dreams. I'm going to spiritually recharge properly. The fact that I have properly, indicated by the fact that I have negative dreams, shows that I've been desensitized because I'm involved in the wrong activities throughout the day. Make sense? You know, the, the Rebbe used to encourage yeshiva students. Rebbe wanted students in his yeshiva to really be engrossed in Torah study. And he said that I it has to come to the point that in your sleep, you're dreaming of ideas in Torah. Rebbe had high standards for his yeshiva students. You're so focused it's, it's so, because it's so important to you that you're dreaming of new ideas, insights in your Torah studies. And, and the idea is what we're focused on in the daytime, if not quantity-wise, at least quality-wise, will impact what we think about at nighttime, will impact our dreams, will impact our ability to recharge, and will better sensitize us. That's meditation number four. And that could be a hard conversation because if we're constantly having negative dreams, we're, you know, where are we? What are we really thinking about in the daytime? Which is... Uh, you know, that's a lot to think about it. It could, but the idea is again, the common denominator between all of these meditations, we're humbling ourselves. Just like splintering that log so it could catch fire, we're humbling more room for the soul. The thing about that is like, okay, um, I, I rarely remember my dreams, but the ones, the ones that I do remember, um, I usually can't associate with anything. In my life, right, like like right. I can't are... find any connection between that dream and any reality in my life whatsoever. So it's 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 almost like a, a applying this is difficult because I lack a, a vision to connect my dreams to anything. Right. Right. You just don't have this issue then. <laughs> you don't have negative dreams. You're in a good place. Well, no, but I, but I prefer to be, you know, having dreams that, uh, you know, we're, we're holy in nature, like, 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 you know, like you're saying, dream about Torah, dream about Hashem. But you know, I'll <laughs> some bizarre dream that I that makes no sense to me. I can't connect to anything at all. Right. Right. Um, there's, um, I don't know exactly where this story comes from, but. Um, there's this idea that if you get a table dirty, but you don't know where the dirt is, then you have to clean the whole table. So if you can't associate where the dreams are coming from, but there's some negativity to it, then um, <laughs> if you can't figure out what spot during the day is negative, then you're going to have to spend the, you know, clean up the whole day kind of thing. That's interesting. Okay. Interesting. It, it, it makes your burden bigger. If you can't make the correlation, but the burden is there nonetheless. Interesting. Interesting. That's a good analogy. I like that. Although it's tough. It's a tough analogy. <laughs> tough a to implement. To stop there. Well, I mean, <laughs> when, we, when you have children, you know it because you go to the changing table and you smell that it's dirty, but you can't see where it's dirty. You have to clean the whole changing table until it's 
you know, doesn't have the smell. Right. So, I mean, it's a very uh, practical experience, but that's not where the story came from. <laughs> okay, let's Okay, meditation number five. Um, okay, he, it, this is the bottom of 330. He calls it meditation number two. He breaks them up differently than me, but that's okay. The, the author of the translator of this book. Um, the bottom of 334. Another way to humble ourselves is to enrage ourselves. At our animal souls, at our evil inclinations. 335, the second paragraph. As our sages of blessed memory taught, this is from the Talmud, a person should always make his impulse to good angry at his impulse to evil. As the verse states in Psalms, get angry and don't sin. Meaning to say, get angry with your animal soul, in other words, your impulse to evil, with a thunderous voice of anger. And say to it, you are bad, sinful, disgusting, repulsive, and wrenched. Along with all the similar terms which our sages of blessed memory have rightfully used for the impulse to evil. Okay. So what happens when we start calling our animal soul names? Even if they're negative names. What happens is we externalize them. What is the whole problem here? My core identity is klepa, is negativity, or is self-orientedness, is self-centeredness. And if I start pinpointing to the self-centered energy, you are getting in my way. You are wicked, you are evil. I'm externalizing it. And I'm developing a deeper sense of identity. Not my animal soul, but my divine soul. This idea is discussed a lot in the concept of narrative therapy. Narrative therapy, therapy is a mode of therapy created by, I forgot his first name, something white. The only non-Jewish therapist in the textbooks. Um, he's created in the 70s. <laughs> and one of the core ideas in narrative therapy is externalizing problems. So somebody is depressed. Tell them, no, you're not depressed. You have it's narrative therapy because you're rewriting the narrative. You're not depressed. You are George or whatever your name is. You are you. You're a human being. You have depression. Externalize the depression. And give it a name. Because that further externalizes it. Right? Nobody talks to themselves in first person with it, with it or, or sorry, in second, in third person by name. The fact that you name something externalizes it. We don't name ourselves. So when we name our animal soul and give it an ugly name, we'll soon, we'll soon see why we're giving it ugly names. That externalizes it. We start to realize what our core identity really is. Because as we said in the beginning of the chapter, the middle of the chapter, uh, back on three... 28, uh, third to last paragraph. I'll read the paragraph quickly again. In the case of the Bainini, since his energizing animal soul dressed in his flesh and blood has a deep core of which hasn't been transformed to good, here's the key. That, constitute, that constitutes the Bainini's actual identity. But if we externalize it, are developing a new sense of identity, a deeper sense of identity, our divine souls. Make sense? Sometimes when we feel a negative impulse coming up, we have to tell our evil impulse, hey, why are you doing this to me? Which number one, identifies it. Or two, identifies external to me, which is good, essentially good. There's an idea of externalizing it. Now, why should we call it evil names? Why negative names? You know, calling it so, so there was a a chassin, Reuven Dunin. Reuven Dunin was a very interesting personality. Grew up in a, as a hardcore yeshiva student. He left. He left Judaism. Took his own path. 
then he did Teshuvah, he came back. And he was a, known as a character. One person, and there's a lot of interesting stories about him. And he was once, from Rangin, he was once having a discussion in the yeshiva with, with the students. And, here's, and, the reason, and he said, the reason why we have to call the animal soul names and course names, he says, you got to call an animal by its name. The, con the idea and the idea is when somebody faints, you wake them up by calling their name. Right? Somebody's sleeping. You might talk in the room. They're not going to wake up. But as soon as you say their name, they're going to wake up. Right? But if you start calling the animal by its Jewish name, by a Jewish name, it's not going to work. You have to call it by its name. So you have to say you wicked. You, right? you call a donkey by its name donkey. And the idea is we have to wake up the animal soul. Put it in its place. It develops humility. I have like this sneeze that's coming and it's like not working. <laughs> I get those all the time. <laughs> and when they come, they come in 12s. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And here, um, just to further elaborate, if you look at the middle page, Middle of, sorry, middle, middle of the page of 335. Say to your animal soul, smack in the middle. Small, bold paragraph. Say to your animal soul, how much, for how much longer will you hide before the blessed infinite light? How much more are you going to be obstructing me in my relationship with God? Call it out. Call out the animal soul and tell it, hey, I want to connect to something deep. I want to connect to something true. I want to connect to something real. I don't see it. I believe it. And that's because you, Mr. Animal Soul, are obstructing me, are stopping me. You're getting my way. Stop it. Call it out. Tell it. Put it in its place. Now, the reason. Hold on one second. Right, okay. What happens when we do this? What happens when we do these five different meditations, whichever one we uh, need most? In all of these situations, right, like we said, the common denominator the common there we go, the common denominator between all of these. Avoid avoid the <laughs> difficult situation. The, the common denominator, there we go, between all of these is humbling our animal soul, making more room for the divine soul, externing externalizing the animal soul, developing our true core identity, the divine soul. Now look on page 336, please. Uh, the second paragraph. Just real quickly, um, the only one I'm having trouble not understanding, okay. one of, only one I'm having trouble understanding uh, is number one. Okay. Number one. Is, is it, if I get it right, it's acknowledging that I'm serving the body and not the, not, uh, not the, uh, Higher soul, but but even if in practice I'm not serving the body, but in terms of what my drive is, what excites me. So if you put a there's a slice of pizza here and a book of Torah, not that pizza is necessarily bad, but what's going to get me more excited? Pizza, right? And that's very normal. Many of us are more excited by the pizza than, than the book of Torah. That's what gets you more about. You're in good company. <laughs> um, but meditating on that is a humbling idea because it shows us where we truly are. Now, the best of both, I, you know, sometimes we need to suppress our impulse. Say, forget the pizza going for the toilet. But sometimes you can merge the two. You have the pizza, and as long as it's kosher pizza, it will give us the energy to study Torah, and you're fusing, you're fusing both. Instead of suppressing the animal soul, you're redirecting it, which is a beautiful thing. You're riding the animal soul instead of fighting it. But 
there's there's a time and place for everything. Sometimes you need to ride it, but in order to ride it, you got to train it first and you got to suppress it first. Make sense? Okay. Now, when we do these one one or all or a combination of these meditations to sensitize ourselves, here's what happens. Page 336, second paragraph. What are the results we can hope for when following all of the above? So here's what it says. And through this, you will help the eyes of your divine soul to be enlightened by the non-dual reality of God's infinite light. When we become, when we develop a deeper sense of uh, sensitivity, when we remove what's obstructing us and desensitizing us, we see life differently. We see life in a more godly way. We see life from the divine soul perspective, which means we become more, uh, rather than the animal soul perspective, which means we, we see everything that is for a godly purpose. With the clarity and certainty normally associated with the actual sensory vision. Without the uncertainty, which inevitably comes through using deduction, logical. So usually what happens is we believe in God, right? But at some point, our faith should be so strong that, you know, it's as if we see it. You know, when you see something, you know, what's the difference between seeing and hearing? When you hear things you know it's something you have to you have to get your mind involved and process it so somebody could talk you out of it oh you misunderstood right but when you see something you have an ultimate you have a, a deep level of clarity and it's the same with our relationship with god sometimes our faith when our faith is more abstract it's more like we heard it but the goal is our faith should clear that we actually and if we develop this sensitivity our faith will be so strong and so real because we're so sensitive to our souls that we have that clarity of sight. Now, this clarity of sight, this is an incredible line that he says, line of this paragraph, this is the root of all worship. This is the root of all divine service. This is the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of existence. We'll talk about this more in chapters 35 through 37 is to take what we normally believe in and bring it make it part of this world so it's not faith anymore it's actually it's real it's real to our eyes in the in the story where um elijah is there with the, his servants and uh, an army comes to his house and the servants are terrified because they think that uh, that they're going to be killed but then elijah said opens up his eyes and he sees all the protections that God has provided, right? Is that beautiful analogy? Is that this kind of sight that we're going to get? That's a good question. You know, they say if you if you talk to God, you're holy. If God talks back to you, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, if you tell me you start seeing things, I don't know what I'm going to start uh, thinking. Are you a believer or are you? No, I'm kidding. I'm just teasing. But. Um, you know, maybe, but I think on a more on a more simple level, the clarity that we're going to have, you know, faith by nature is abstract. The reason why we believe in God is because we don't see him. If we saw him, we wouldn't have to believe in him. But our faith could be so real and so conscious, if you will. Something that we emotionally and intellectually resonate with, that it has the same validity as sight. So when you see something, nobody's going to talk you out of it. Your faith could be so strong to the point that nobody could talk you out of it because it's something you emotionally and intellectually, uh, something that emotionally and intellectually resonates with you. It's not just blind faith, but it's intentional, informed faith. Now, once we have that. I think you will see miracles, like in the case of Elijah, right? But before the Baal Shem Tov's parents' father passed away, the Baal Shem Tov was orphaned. Baal Shem Tov was the Hasidic movement. He was orphaned at a very young age. At a... And the last thing his father told him on his deathbed, fear nothing, 
but God himself. Right? We have to fear nothing but God himself. Then where does that come from? How do we not fear? How do we not fear life? Life is scary. Because we have that faith. We have a clear vision of our purpose. And what re the reality of existence truly is, which is all God. And with real faith, with developing more sensitivity toward our faith, nothing could talk us out of it. And I'll tell you a story. You know, to really get this, you have to really study Tanya. You have to really be involved intellectually, emotionally, in Hasidic thought. Because right now we learned about this idea and, and we're inspired for the moment. But for it to carry over tomorrow morning and to motivate us to roll out of bed and do, and do something about it, it takes work. It takes work and it takes more studying. It takes, you know, you have to have some lahayims together. We have to have a forbring and we have to really, it's a way of life that we really have to develop sensitivity toward. It doesn't just happen in one day. And when, when Hasidic wisdom came widespread, it was very controversial. These ideas were controversial. not introduce anything new to Judaism, right? Anything we're saying here in the Tanya is, you know, everything has a, everything's quoted from, all it's doing is focusing and re-emphasizing ideas that haven't been focused on earlier, right? You may ask, Hasidic thought is only 200 and something years old. What have been people been doing until now? Yaltarebbe just took ideas from the Talmud, from the Torah, from the Zohar, etc., and just put them in context. But that was scary to people because these ideas haven't been focused on for a long time. The idea of focusing on the soul, on the joy, and all these different things that focus. So there was there was it was controversial amongst mainstream Judaism, and there was a group called the Misnagdim. Misnagdim were people that opposed Hasidus. Very great degree, and there was a Hasidic Jew who was traveling somewhere on, on business, and he had to stay in this community of misnagdim, of people that opposed Hasidus, Hasidic wisdom, ideas from Tanya, and these ideas, and they started interrogating him. You know, you're staying in our community, you're going to our synagogue. They wanted to interrogate him to see if he's a from the Hasidic camp or from the mainstream quote-unquote camp. So they started interrogating him, but in a very discreet way. So they said to him, what is the difference between a person, a Hasid and a Misnagid, a person who lives life Hasidic wisdom, inspired by Hasidic wisdom, and a person who opposes these ideas? His answer, they'll see where he belongs. So he said to them something exactly what they wanted to hear. I'll tell you the difference. A chassid thinks about himself. A misnagid, an opponent, an opponent thinks about God. Their eyes lit up. Perfect. You could stay with him. Can you repeat what you just said? So they interrogated him to see which camp he's part of. Right. And they said, what's the difference between a chassid and a misnagid, a person who lives with Hasidic wisdom, internalizes Hasidic wisdom, and a person who opposes these ideas? So he said, the chassid thinks about himself, a misnagid thinks about God. And they like that. So he, later, later, he comes home and he tells everybody the story, and they said, well, you lied. You made us look bad. He said, no, 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 they misunderstood. A chassid person who internalizes Hasidic wisdom thinks about himself because God is so real to him, he doubts his own existence. He has to think about himself. A misnugget, a person who opposes these ideas, doesn't, you know, distract about him once in a while to make it more real. Now, the reason why I say this story is not to, God forbid, put down any Jews or, or put down anybody, and it's not to get political. That's not the point. The reason why I say the story is just to illustrate the power of what we're learning. The power of what we're learning, developing more sensitivity toward God, toward our souls, enables us 
to get to a point where our faith is so real, that God is so real, that we start doubting our who exists, do I exist, or does God exist? You know, there's a there's a Hasidic adage. And I'll conclude with this. Famous a, a well-known Hasidic adage, which literature. And I'll, I'll I'll paraphrase. You take a trip to heaven, so to speak. Take a rocket ship to heaven. And you see life through a godly perspective. The existence of God is taken for granted. And the fact that there's an independent world where God seems abstract is a nuance. Whereas our perspective in this world is the exact opposite. Our own desires, our own lusts, our own agenda, our own independence is taken for granted. And the fact that there's a God who wants to kind of get and gum up my plans, that's a nuance. And that's the difference between the animal, the divine soul and the animal soul. And the more sensitivity we develop um, with the divine soul, by trying to make more room and, and, and kind of splinter this log, the animal soul, the more we'll be able to gain that higher perspective. Make sense? Thoughts, comments, controversy. Anyone? <laughs> okay. Let's take it outside. Let's take it outside. Okay, well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>